Hello, and welcome to the podcast Buffy and the Art of Story Season 5. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today we are talking about Season 5, Episode 9, Listening to Fear, where Joyce prepares for brain surgery as an alien demon from outer space stalks her. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist, writing coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can learn more about fiction writing, publishing, and book marketing. As to listening to fear, we'll talk today about how the first scene in the hospital shows why a story always starts with conflict, even if it's portraying a character's ordinary life, the way Riley failing the team is a great example of a character's inner struggles shown through actions and some of the perils of that. How Buffy's goal to keep Joyce safe and the alien demon's goal of getting rid of people with psychiatric problems illustrates what happens when a protagonist and antagonist are unaware of each other for much of the story. And finally, how the dialogue here is a wonderful example of how to sow seeds so the audience understands later character actions and events. There will be no spoilers except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Listening to Fear aired the first time on November 28, 2000. It was written by Rebecca Rand Kirshner and directed by David Solomon. We start, as I mentioned, in Joyce's hospital room. She tells Dawn and Buffy she won't mind if they go get some real food, despite how appetizing that spinach looks. So a little bit of minor conflict from Joyce about the food as we start in what is now Buffy's ordinary life of helping take care of her mom. This minor conflict draws the audience in and sets the scene, and the conflict continues as Dawn eats Joyce's green jello off the tray and tells them that someone at school told her it's made of ground cow's feet, and now she's worried about cows limping around with no feet. And Buffy tells her mother, you're the one who insisted on teaching her to talk. This is another example of something I mentioned in earlier episodes about Dawn being written somewhat younger than she is because it's hard to believe a 14-year-old would really think that was an issue. Now we have more conflict as the doctor enters. He reminds them not to wear Joyce out, but Joyce isn't worried because she woke up exhausted. There's really nowhere worse to go from there. The lab work is done and the surgery is scheduled for the day after tomorrow. Joyce jokes that she had volleyball planned, but she can work around it. After the doctor leaves, though, she tells the girls she doesn't think she can stand to wait two more days in the hospital. Buffy and Dawn assures her there is tons to do. They can watch soap operas, go through trashy magazines, and play with the adjustable bed. Joyce also worries that Buffy is missing patrolling tonight, but she says it's fine. She has mom duty and Riley is filling in. So this whole scene was the opening conflict of 
our story. And here it does relate to the main plot, though somewhat indirectly. Because Joyce is still in the hospital, she will be vulnerable to the alien demon that Buffy eventually will face. And that is the monster antagonist in this episode. Now we continue with more conflict and it relates to the continuing arc about Riley. We transition to it with Buffy telling Joyce she's sure the gang has everything under control for patrolling with Riley's help. But at 1 minute 56 seconds in, the friends minus Riley are fighting two vampires in the graveyard. The first vamp almost kills Giles. Willow stakes it from behind at the last second. The other fights Xander and shoves Willow away, but Willow, again to the rescue, comes back and stakes the vampire too. She is very shaky, though, and tells Giles and Xander that was pretty cool, except where she was all terrified and dizzy. Xander wishes he'd done more, but says he should get points for showing up, quote, unlike some Riley Finn who shall remain unnamed, end quote. Willow argues they don't need Riley when she dusted two at a time, but she almost passes out. Having Riley do that is a strong way to show how messed up he is emotionally because he had to know the risks of leaving Giles and Willow and Xander alone to patrol. At the same time, it illustrates how tricky that can be because I'm left with feeling annoyed at Riley because he's endangering our key characters and whatever he's going through about Buffy, he told her he would do this. And he is penalizing not Buffy, but her friends. To me, it makes Riley read as more petulant and childish than as someone that I feel sympathy for. And it makes it harder for me to understand what he's going through or why he's acting this way. Now we cut to another strong illustration of Riley's emotional state because he is in a dark rundown house and a vampire is biting the inside of his elbow as he sits there clearly a willing participant and then we go to credits we return at four minutes 48 seconds in and Willow brings presents for all three summer's women at the hospital she jokes that she's like Santa only thinner younger female and Jewish This is around where I look for the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. Here it's fairly subtle and it comes a bit later, whereas normally we see it about 10% through of any story. Willow gives Joyce a plastic beer hat with cup holders on it to put drinks in and straws. And then says it seemed like a much better idea when she was looking at it at the store, but you can put things other than beer in it. Joyce is very gracious. Dawn is thrilled with the book Willow brings her on magic. And Willow tells a worried Buffy that no, there are no spells, just history. Buffy comments the girl who can break things by just looking at them now has a book to teach her to break things by looking at them. 
Joyce rubs her head in pain but assures Buffy she's fine. It's just a little headache, a biggish one. Willow brings Buffy her homework and Buffy says she doesn't believe in, quote, tiny Jewish Santa anymore, end quote. But there is also a yo-yo to go with and Willow reassures her she'll have no trouble taking the exam, but Buffy's not sure she'll be taking that test. Joyce interrupts and says, I'd rip it in half and stick it in bed with me. Everyone looks at her and then Joyce, clearly confused, says that she's tired and wants to take a nap. So that comment by Joyce is what I see as the story spark because this is why the demon eventually will target Joyce because it is becoming obvious that something is wrong with her brain. At 7 minutes 52 seconds, in out in the hallway, Buffy explains to Dawn that the doctor told her the tumor might cause Joyce to say odd things. Right then, a man who is a psychiatric patient and is heading home with his family points at Dawn and says, what is that thing? He also talks about there's no data, no pictures, no one in there. Dawn is frightened. She asks Buffy, is the man like Joyce? A little bit of foreshadowing there of the idea that the demon will link Joyce with the psychiatric patients. Buffy tells Dawn it's different. Don't worry about it. And the intern, Ben, joins them and asks if the man was bothering them. Buffy's surprised the hospital is sending him home. And Ben says the mental ward is booked beyond capacity. The man needs supervision 24-7 and his family won't be able to take care of him. Another seed that the dialogue sows, setting up later events. Ben asks Dawn what the man said, and Buffy cuts in to claim he was just babbling before Dawn can answer. At 9 minutes 10 seconds in, we cut to Tara and Willow. They're lying on a rooftop In a double sleeping bag, looking at the stars, Willow talks about how a lot of those stars don't exist anymore. They exploded or died long before the light reached Earth. Tara asks her if things were hard at the hospital. This is such a lovely way to show their relationship. Tara knows right away why Willow is lying there talking about the deaths of stars. Willow doesn't answer. She goes on instead about how she loved to look at constellations when she was little. It didn't make her feel insignificant like some people say. It, quote, made me feel like I was in space, part of the stars, end quote. And I love this because that's exactly how I feel when I look at the stars. And it's so rare for me. There's so much light in Chicago where I live, even at nighttime, that you can't see them. And one of my favorite parts when I vacation somewhere where uh, there is not all that light is to stare up at the night sky. Tara tells Willow about constellations she made up like the big pineapple, short man looking uncomfortable, and little pile of crackers. Their conversation is interrupted though when a flaming meteor streaks toward the earth and looks like it will land nearby. This is at 11 minutes 21 seconds in, so right about a quarter way through the episode. And that's where we typically see the first major plot turn. And it should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and raise the stakes. And here, the meteor does 
all those things because it brings a demon to earth. This turns the entire story, putting many lives in danger, including Joyce's. You could also see this as the story spark because without the demon, in terms of a monster plot, it wouldn't matter that Joyce was raving. And this is one reason having a protagonist and antagonist who are unaware of each other for so much of the story can cause it to lose a little bit of momentum because up to now, we're not really sure what the main plot of this episode is. The scene switches to the woods where the meteor crashed and the patient from the hospital walks through the woods by himself. So remember that Ben's dialogue told us this man needed watching all the time and his family wouldn't be able to do it. And now we see him out by himself. Something otherwise, as an audience, we probably would have questioned. A creepy giant bug-like demon attacks him. At 12 minutes 44 seconds, we switch to the demon's point of view. It's now at the hospital and then inside it, stuck to the ceiling watching a patient being wheeled in. Joyce in her room struggles with the remote to call a nurse and says she bets it's not hooked up to anything like the push buttons at the crosswalks. Buffy is shocked that those aren't hooked up to anything. Side note again about Chicago there was a great episode on the local NPR station about the number of crosswalk buttons where it says push to get a walk sign that are not in fact hooked up to anything anymore. Something I always suspected but did not know. Some of them are, but quite a few of them are not for various reasons. The doctor comes in Buffy says they want to go home. Joyce can't stand being there waiting, which caused me to think Joyce has amazing health insurance. The doctor is not so sure. Joyce becomes really agitated. Her head hurts. She can't stand to be there. And the doctor tells her there's no reason to get upset. And Joyce says, no reason to get upset? Sorry, I must just think so because of the brain tumor. And I say good on Joyce for calling out the doctor for ignoring her pain. Buffy gives Dawn money to get something from the vending machine, and Joyce apologizes. Buffy assures the doctor she can take care of Joyce at home so that her mom can rest where she feels safe and comfortable. Joyce is so grateful. The doctor tells Buffy she'll need to check Joyce's vitals. There's lots of medications, and Buffy won't get much sleep, to which Buffy responds, I'm not much of a sleep person anyway. Throughout this, the demon crawls on the ceiling in the hallway above Dawn. At 15 minutes in, Riley walks with the others in the woods near where the meteor landed and says he's glad they called him. Xander says sarcastically, I'm glad you answered. Riley comments he heard he missed a lot of fun last night, and Xander points out there was also near-death hijinks. They find the meteor. Riley sees that it's broken open, and they realize that something came out of the shell and slithered away, though Giles says they can't be certain it slithered. And Anya comments she's sure that it just frolicked away like a little lamb. They keep searching, and Willow finds the man from the hospital dead and recognizes him as the, quote, mental patient, unquote, released today. 
These days, obviously, we wouldn't use the term mental patient or mental ward as been used earlier. We'd probably say psychiatric ward, someone with mental health issues or with psychiatric problems. And I mention it only because none of them are trying to be insensitive here. That was the terminology used at the time. Riley finds this gross, clear gel in the man's mouth, and they all recoil from the smell of it. Willow wants to call Buffy, but they agree they can't. Buffy needs to take care of her mom. And they have the experience to deal with these things. And Anya, again, the voice of humor and realism says, yes, because it seems like we're always dealing with creatures from outer space, except that we don't ever do that. The others go off to do research, and Riley says he'll stay in the area and look around. Once they're gone, though, he dials his phone and asks for the, quote, man at the desk. This is a, this is Riley Finn, end quote. This dialogue is a nice way to show how Riley still identifies with his former work. He wants to call himself agent and his tone conveys a military guy persona. He also mentions Graham Miller and asks for the emergency frequency, which lets whoever is at the other end know that he is familiar with all of this. At 1901, a nurse in the psychiatric ward turns out the lights. She ignores what sounds like a patient raving and leaves the room. He's frightened for good reason. The demon is crawling under and around his bed and then gets on top of him and spits this clear gel over his face. We cut to the doctor sending Buffy home with all Joyce's medications. Don is with him at the hospital desk, uneasy when Joyce says Buffy looks just like her father when she cries. And what do you think he was begging for? That last line is in the background very faint because we are shifting to the demon's point of view as it watches and listens from the ceiling. At 20 minutes 54 seconds in, Joyce comes back to herself and they head out as the demon watches. So that is right around the midpoint of the episode where in a strongly structured story, we see the protagonist making a major commitment or suffering a major reversal. Buffy here made a major commitment by taking her mom home, despite that she seems to be experiencing more symptoms. This isn't a super strong commitment because Buffy already agreed to do that, but there is definitely a major reversal here because that demon is now fixated on Joyce, seeing her as one of the psychiatric patients will find out it needs to go after. This plot as a whole is a good example of a protagonist and antagonist with conflicting goals, but ones that are not necessarily directly opposed to each other. So the strongest conflict in a story is a locked conflict where the protagonist and antagonist have mutually exclusive goals. If one wins, the other loses. And here, the goals conflict because Buffy's is to take Joyce home and keep her safe and comfortable and of course alive, the demon's goal is to eliminate people with psychiatric problems. The reason it's not a locked conflict is there is a certain amount of happenstance here that the demon focuses on Joyce. 
it could seek out a psychiatric patient somewhere else in the hospital. In fact, we find out it did, but its goal isn't specifically to target Joyce. And that gives it a little bit less momentum, as does the fact that Buffy is not even going to be aware of the demon until much later in the story. However, this also shows that an antagonist doesn't necessarily need to feel personal animosity toward the protagonist. This demon is probably barely aware of Buffy, our protagonist. Also, it is not motivated by evil. We'll find out it's summoned for a purpose. So it is acting out its purpose. And while we see it as evil, and certainly Buffy does, it has its own reasons. It's not just to be evil. Today's episode of Buffy in the Art of Story is sponsored by my own Awakening Supernatural Thriller series. In book one, The Awakening, Tara's mysterious pregnancy turns her life upside down. It sidetracks her plans for medical school, her boyfriend breaks up with her, and her parents question her mental health when she insists that she's never had sex. Only a stranger who belongs to a powerful cult believes her. But the cult becomes her sworn enemy when it's revealed that her child will be a girl. On the run and afraid, Tara sets out on a quest to discover whether she and her child are meant to save the world or destroy it. You can find book one at lisalily.com slash the hyphen awakening or follow the link in the show notes. It is a four book series that is complete, so you can also get it as a box set. At home, we get more actions that show the role reversal for Buffy and Joyce. Joyce is very relieved to be home until Buffy turns on the lights. It hurts Joyce's eyes, and she's really struggling and pleads with Buffy to turn off the light, something that in normal times, one, it wouldn't bother her, but two, she'd just flip off the light switch. But now she really needs Buffy to go through the house, make sure that it's dark, which Buffy and Dawn do. At 21 minutes, 55 seconds in, a helicopter lands at night at the crash site. Military guys emerge. Major Ellis, who is in charge, meets Riley, who fills them in and leads them toward the dead man. Graham comments, quote, don't you usually call your girlfriend for this kind of thing, end quote. It's a light-hearted sounding joke, but it's pointed, especially given Graham's previous interaction with Riley, where he was upfront about thinking that Riley could not be happy staying in Sunnydale to be Buffy's boyfriend without a mission of his own. Riley explains that the demon is extraterrestrial, gives the major a sample of the gel he collected, and tells him it's an alkaloid that's breaking down too fast to track. He suggests they follow trace radiation from the meteor to find the demon. At 23 minutes, 46 seconds in, we're back at the Summers' home. 
much of the action happens from the demon's point of view. We hear it as it moves across the ceiling, very sticky, and we get an odd camera angle. Joyce comes downstairs in the dark. Buffy and Dawn, who are watching TV, don't notice until they hear banging from the kitchen. They find Joyce going through the refrigerator while something burns on the stove. Joyce is angry. She says she's making breakfast and then tells Buffy that Buffy shouldn't eat anymore. She's disgustingly fat. Then she comes back to herself for a moment and says she doesn't know what she's doing. Buffy soothes her and leads her back to bed. In the bedroom, though, when Dawn leans toward Joyce, Joyce recoils and tells Dawn not to touch her and calls her a thing. She goes on, quote, you're nothing. You're a shadow. I don't know what you are, how you got here, end quote. I find it interesting that Joyce calls Dawn a shadow, which is also what the doctor called whatever they saw in her brain before they knew it was a tumor. They said it was a shadow, which was the episode title as well. I'm not sure if that's meant to be any clue toward a connection between Dawn and the tumor or simply the idea that the tumor pressing on her brain makes Joyce see shadows such as dawn then she says dawn honey what's wrong when dawn gets upset and leaves in dawn's room dawn tells buffy that joyce hates her buffy tells her no her mom loves her she's just not herself then dawn tells buffy that other people say these things about her like the guy at the hospital and there was someone else outside the magic box so way back in that early episode real me Dawn didn't apparently tell Buffy, which was something I wondered about, something that we didn't see. And maybe it was because it frightened her so much and she didn't know what to think about it. Now she's ready to confide it. And this whole part of the dialogue sows seeds for later on when Dawn will stay in her room when she hears Joyce raving because Buffy tells her that she thinks people who have problems with their brains start to believe nothing else is real but them. It's like a short circuit. So Dawn should not listen when anyone says something like that to her, even if it's her mom. I feel like this is so well done because otherwise Dawn might have gone into Joyce's room sooner. We switch to our friends at the library. They can't find any other recent meteor landings, but Willow finds a report of an anomaly when a meteor hit in 1917 and some witnesses said it was hollow. She also talks about something called the Queller impact in the 12th century. This reminds Xander of something he read about a primitive society that believed the moon caused insanity and sometimes prayed for a special meteor expected to quell the madmen. Willow also says she found reports of plagues of madness in the Middle Ages, and then it would subside pretty close in time to when the meteor events occurred. They connect all of this to the patient with psychiatric problems that they found dead. Tara wonders who invoked this demon, and Xander guesses Glory, the resident beastie summoner. Willow again wants to call Buffy, but knows they can't, so they call Riley at 30 minutes, 13 seconds in. He tells them he's at the hospital, and there were five corpses in the psychiatric ward. So this also explains, in retrospect, 
why the demon targeted Joyce. Perhaps it killed everyone in the psych ward. Riley doesn't mention that he called in the military, just tells the others to keep researching. Willow tells him Joyce was at the hospital acting strange, but he reassures her they all went home, that Ben told him. I love that tiny moment there that Riley found out Buffy took Joyce home from Ben. I didn't even think about this on previous watches, but it's another instance of Riley is not at all in the loop, and we know he had his cell phone with him. So Spike told him that Joyce was at the hospital, and Ben tells him that Joyce went home. Riley thinks they have the demon cornered in the air ducts, but at 31 minutes in, we switch to the summer's home. Joyce stares at the ceiling, raving. One of the things she says is, why are you staring at me like that? And Dawn in her room puts a pillow over her own ears to shut out the sound. Buffy is downstairs in the kitchen. She turns on music very loud. It's upbeat, chipper music. Such a contrast to how Buffy is feeling as she does the dishes. And finally, she breaks down and sobs. It is so characteristic of Buffy to do this only when no one else is there, when no one else can hear her. And it's another great example of character actions showing her inner emotional state and showing a character trait that Buffy believes she has to keep it together for everyone else and is not allowed to take time out to feel her own feelings. And what happens next probably reinforces that because while she is crying, the demon will attack Joyce. Joyce keeps raving, the camera angle switches, and we see that She is talking to the demon as it hangs above her on the ceiling, so no wonder she is angry and petrified. We're reaching about the three-quarter mark in the episode, and typically here we see the last major plot turn that spins the story in yet another new direction. It also raises the stakes again, and here that will happen because now the demon will attack. First, though... We see the military guys, they follow the trail out to the parking lot, and Riley figures out the demon must have hid under or on top of a car, which is when it hits him that it followed Joyce. He says he knows where it is, and they rush off. If Riley concluding this were key to the main plot and needed for a major plot turn, I'd find this less than satisfying because it's a bit of a leap here for Riley to be so certain it's Joyce. Other patients were likely released from the hospital that day. In fact, we know they were sending psychiatric patients home. I'm not surprised Riley would rush off himself, but he would probably have someone check on that. However, that isn't what drives the plot here. So I think that it works fine. It's relevant only to Riley's continuing arc. At 33 minutes, 42 seconds in, Joyce says she'll shut her eyes and it will be gone. But of course, that doesn't work. And she screams as the demon 
dives down onto her. It vomits clear gel onto her face. Dawn hears Joyce's screams, runs out, grabs a freestanding coat rack, and knocks the demon off of her. Joyce pulls the clear gel mask off her face, and the demon chases Dawn as she runs away and yells for Buffy. But Buffy doesn't hear her over the music. Dawn gets back to Joyce's room, locks herself in, but yells again before she does, and Buffy finally hears it. Buffy races upstairs, tells them to stay in the bedroom. She fights the demon, rolls down the stairs with it, and it scurries away. Joyce holds Dawn in the bedroom, telling her it's all right. At 35 minutes, 18 seconds in, Buffy goes through the darkened house after grabbing a knife from the kitchen. She's searching for the demon, but she encounters Spike emerging from the basement. He claims he came there to steal things and asks if she heard a noise. She notices he has what looks like photos of her, but lucky for him, the demon attacks before she can follow up on that. We are now at the climax where the antagonist and protagonist have their final confrontation and resolve it. At 36 minutes, 29 seconds in, the demon attacks Buffy and Spike. They fight together. And the fight ends when Spike throws her the knife, which the demon had knocked away, and she stabs the demon over and over again in its back as it is on top of her, and it dies lying on her. She rolls over and pushes it to the side. And I have to say, this is one of the most disgusting demons that Buffy has fought, and I don't think it is any mistake that she dies with it on top of her. That also shows where Buffy is emotionally and how this experience of this whole day is affecting her and everything that is going on. We switch into the falling action part of the plot at 37 minutes in. This is where the story ties up loose, ends, resolves subplots, and in a series often includes continuing character arcs. If you have a friend who loves Buffy and storytelling but doesn't listen to podcasts, or if you want to revisit earlier seasons in print, check out the Buffy and the Art of Story books. They include the breakdown from the podcast of each episode, but edited to cut out some of my run-on sentences and add subheadings to make it easier to skip to key parts that interest you. Also, at the beginning of each chapter, there's a list of the topics covered, and at the end, there are questions to help you apply what was covered about the episode to your own writing. Season one is all in one book, Buffy and the Art of Story, Writing Better Fiction by Watching Buffy. Season two is available in two parts, and season three, part one, is coming soon. You can get these in ebook or paperback editions. Find links at lisalilly.com slash buffybooks, or look under the nonfiction menu item on lisalilly.com, or find them wherever you buy paper books print books or ebooks. Spike reaches out his hand, which Buffy finally takes, and he helps her up 
as the military guys break in. Riley rushes in, asks Buffy if she's okay, but she looks right past him and runs right past him upstairs to her mom and Dawn. Buffy's actions here stress what has been developing. She accepted Spike's hand to help her up, but she ignores Riley as if he's not there or almost as if she's angry at him. And this brings me back to my conversation with Roberto Lip. In an earlier episode where Roberta commented on if you've got this great supportive boyfriend and you don't want him with you for any of what's going on when you're going through something like this with Joyce's illness, that tells you a lot about the relationship. And I had been somewhat resistant to that idea as I talked about feeling like Riley wasn't giving Buffy the space to grieve how she needed to and cope how she needed to. But I can really see how time after time, Buffy does behave as if Riley isn't there. I don't expect her to stop and chat with Riley. She obviously wants to make sure Joyce is okay, but I can see more and more how he feels he almost doesn't exist for her. And Spike says to Riley, you just missed a real nice time. Buffy tells Joyce and Dawn that she killed the demon. They all hug and Buffy says it's okay now. It's finished and goes on. Everything's all right. Everything's all right. And of course it isn't, which is what makes it so heartbreaking. Buffy has killed the demon, but she can't do anything more about her mom's condition. At 37 minutes, 49 seconds in, we switch to Ben. One of Glory's minions is waiting in Ben's car outside the hospital, and the minion accuses Ben of causing unnecessary chaos by summoning the Queller demon. Ben yells at him, and the minion asks why. Why did Ben do it? And Ben, angry, says he's cleaning up Glory's messes, just as he's done his whole damn life. So this is a big reveal of the connection between Ben and Glory. We did see Glory at the hospital before, but it wasn't clear that she had any connection to Ben. So it's a big reveal for the episode that Ben summoned the Queller and for the season arc. At 39 minutes in, a nurse puts in Joyce's IV as Buffy watches. Dawn is not in the room, and Joyce asks Buffy about her and says she wants the truth, that something came to her. She had this flash of knowledge, and Joyce goes on that, Dawn, she's not mine, is she? There's a long pause, and Buffy says no, and Joyce says, she's, she does belong to us, though. And Buffy says, yes, she does. And Joyce says, and she's important to the world. Precious, as precious as you are to me. And Buffy, near tears, nods. And you can see how much Buffy needed to hear that from her mom, how much it means to her that on some level her mom knows or feels that Buffy was at one point her only child. Joyce asks Buffy to promise her to protect Dawn and says Dawn still feels like her daughter and she has to know Buffy will keep Dawn safe and, quote, love her like I love you, end quote. Buffy promises and they hug and Joyce says, my sweet, brave Buffy. What would I do without you? And Buffy's face is so sad when her mom says that. 
At 41 minutes 56 seconds in, Joyce is wheeled into the operating room. Dawn and Buffy arm in arm watch her. Riley stands in the background with the others and we go to credits. That's it other than foreshadowing. If you found the plot point breakdown in this episode helpful and want to try it for your own writing, download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash story. If you're not staying around for the foreshadowing section, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. Come back in two weeks for Into the Woods, where Buffy learns about Riley's dark side. And we hear a little more of my conversation with Roberta Lip, co-host of the Mad Men podcast, They Coined It, about Riley's and Buffy's relationship. Patrons can hear the entire conversation on Patreon, where we also talk about Dawn's place in the world, Ben and Glory, and The Gift. And we are back for foreshadowing, which includes spoilers. When Willow brings Dawn that book on witchcraft, it foreshadows her later actions in Forever. Dawn is devastated by Joyce's death, and Willow nudges a book on witchcraft off the bookshelf for Dawn, not remembering that it includes a spell about bringing someone back from the dead. And this is after Dawn asked about whether she could bring Joyce back. And Tara told her that witches are not to do things like that. And it's a good slow build of Willow not grasping the possible dangers that come with magic, something that we'll see play out in season six. The hospital patient and Joyce calling Dawn a thing, saying there's nothing there. Obviously, Dawn is starting to put this together to connect the dots, and it foreshadows her figuring out first that there is something wrong with her, then seeking out answers and discovering she's the key. And this is a nice build of this, which started in Real Me when we as the audience didn't know what was happening. And now Dawn is starting to catch on. The big reveal about Ben's connection to Glory foreshadows, of course, what we'll learn later, that they are sharing the same body. And the fact that it comes through this scene with the minion foreshadows how later Ben will inadvertently give Glory a clue to Dawn's identity because he gets angry at one of the minions. I do have a few questions about the scene in this episode, though, because Ben says he's cleaning up just like he's done his whole damn life. And also, Willow talks about sweeping plagues of madness in the Middle Ages. Both of these things suggest that Glory has been out causing chaos not just for Ben's whole life, but throughout maybe the history of the world. And I'm not sure if that's consistent with what we learn about Glory later. I'm going to watch for that. My recollection is that something happens where Glory is able to emerge, but not that she has been able to be active through all of Ben's life. 
also, I got the impression that she was banished from her world and immediately imprisoned in Ben, which doesn't fit with her being here in the Middle Ages. But we'll see. I may be remembering the details wrong. That moment with Spike having the photos of Buffy is such a good build for what we'll see in later episodes where he has almost a shrine to Buffy with photos of her and that mannequin head we've seen before with the blonde wig and that he stole Buffy's sweater. All of this shows Spike's deepening either obsession or feelings for Buffy, depending how we look at it, and how he is dealing with that. So it's another example of actions showing a character's inner feelings. Finally, Xander comments in this episode about Riley not showing up for patrol. And last time, Xander commented on Riley missing the Destroy All Vampires date. This sets up him being the one who notices that there is something terribly wrong with Riley and probably with Riley's and Buffy's relationship. The first time I saw Into the Woods, which is the next episode, it felt out of the blue to me that Xander claimed all this insight into Riley. But now I see how this episode and previous episodes sowed the seeds for that and wove that in. And speaking of Into the Woods, that is the next episode. Episode. I hope you will come back in two weeks for it, where Riley gives Buffy an ultimatum. You can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash buffystory or lisalilly.com slash YouTube. You can also comment on the episodes, share them, or connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y or by visiting the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2022. All rights reserved.